Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today we're joined once again by my wife, Dr. Danielle Gilbert. As I've said before, today's episode is probably long overdue. If you know anything about lip tie and tongue tie, then no doubt you've heard a lot of opinions. Today, my goal is to give you a view into the perspective of those who actually perform these procedures. This is a view that I've had the privilege to share with my wife for many years now, and I think there's a lot of perspective you can gain from it. So without any further ado, Dr. Danielle Gilbert. Welcome back, Dr. Gilbert. Thank you for joining me again. Oh, glad to, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're going to talk about phrenectomies, and I have said before that this is probably a topic I should have covered a long time ago, but before we dive into your experience with doing them and the dental side and all that stuff, let's start first with your background in speech pathology and audiology and talk a little bit about what the tongue does, because if we're going to understand how we're changing it, we first need to understand what does it do and what are its essential features? Oh, we're going to go way back. That was my undergrad. So <laughs> that's going way back. Well, let me see. Um, well, just kind of an overview. I mean, the tongue does what I think most people think the tongue does. does. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'm going to be like, oh, wow, that was such a light bulb moment. I'm so glad <laughs> she told us what the tongue does. I mean, obviously your tongue, your tongue is, I mean, it's a group of muscles, but it is, by the way, like if, if I remember right, it's like the biggest group of muscles in the head and neck region. So I mean, it's, it's no slouch, but obviously your tongue is essential for articulation, for talking, for, you know, um, but it's also essential in eating and swallowing and, you know, all, all these very key things that are important for life, right? One of the things I learned from going to seminars with you that I did not know as a non-dental person was the role the tongue plays in shaping the mouth in development. Yep. Um, and so what I, I'd never heard, I hadn't, yeah, and, I, and it doesn't stop. I mean, and actually that's, yeah, that's kind of interesting part. And, and now we're getting into man, like the other end of the spectrum, um, that really it's been a while since I've done in pedo when we talk about dentures, because <laughs> in pedo, you know, we don't really, you know, thank goodness. Really, you don't put dentures no, on a kid. No. Um, so it's been a long time since I you know, had denture classes in dental school and, and, you know, treated some patients with dentures, but the very interesting thing is they would always kind of say how your tongue, it, it forms to the shape of what it, what's around it. So basically it's, they were kind of almost, it's not really like water, but it was almost kind of like that joke that it's like water. It will go where it's allowed to go. Mm. And so, you know, patients, you know, with, that are edentulous, that tongue kind of just starts filling in spots. So, and we'll talk more about um, dentalists in a little bit too, yeah, because yeah, that's going to come up again well, for and, sure. And then you also have patients on the other end of the spectrum who have tori. And okay. some people, like bless their hearts, they have upper tori. They have upper tori and even lower tori. And that's bony structures that on your maxilla and on your mandible form on the inside. So, I mean, there's some people that are trying to park their SUV in a very tight little space, in a compact car, you know, space. And then, of course, you have like, you know, other issues with growth and development where maybe they don't have enough room in their arch and stuff for other reasons. But, um, but your tongue is very interesting because it tries to mold to the space that it has. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. And then, and then the other part is that during development, you learn coordination of the tongue and that's, and that's where the tongue tie starts to come in. 
that if you're going through key developmental stages, but you can't move the tongue the way you need to move the tongue, you're not going to develop those motor patterns. Right. And, you know, trying to kind of keep it at more of, um, you know, just like the overview, right? Mm -hmm. Not not getting into necessarily the nitty gritty detail, which, I mean, honestly, I'd have to probably crack some books and, (laughs) and, you know, I mean, this stuff can get as detailed as you want, right? The universe of the details, but um, it's amazing how many things we actually take for granted that are really actually complicated, complicated things that we do in the human body. But um, with the development, I did not really realize until pediatric residency is that, yes, your swallow is supposed to change. Now, mm. not everyone has that, and that's kind of a problem. But for babies, and this is the part I didn't, I didn't know, and um, we happened to be having our first little one <laughs> while I was in residency. So I think that like some of these things maybe hit home even more because it's like, it wasn't that I just was learning about hypothetical things because it was like, I would go home and be like, Oh my goodness. Well, babies are obligate nasal breathers. And, and I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe a lot of people like don't automatically know they're obligate nasal breathers, which means that babies for a certain period of their life, they have to breathe through their nose. So that's why, too, when you, you have that baby that's kind of croupy and they're snotty and, and you know, you're thinking, <gasps> you know they, they don't have that second option. They're not breathing through their mouth. Their mouth might be, they, they need to breathe through their nose. So during that time, though, it's because that when a baby is born, they have a swallow that's different and their tongue, it, the way they are suckling. Mm-hmm. And so there is a period of, of time there where the reason they're obligate nasal breathers is really to allow for the nursing mechanism mm. to make, to, to happen. Um, and I remember asking the question in, in residency, I, they always loved me. I'd always ask like the questions that they'd be like, you know, um, but I asked, so when does that change? Like, when do they go from a suckle to more of a true swallow? Because the suckle is really where that tongue kind of just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to, again, um, facilitate the nursing process. Eventually, they then start having it be where the tongue is supposed to go up to the roof of the mouth and kind of like a backwards wave motion as they close and swallow. And it creates a seal that along with that soft palate, the hard palate that goes to the soft palate, which is, again, also why poor kids that are going through things like cleft palate and stuff, it's, it's a swallowing problem. It, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of problems, but it, swallowing can be a really big deal for these poor children going through that. But but ideally, you're supposed to be able to create a seal so that as you swallow, you know, certain things are getting cut off, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So for for children, though, um, you know, the answer to the question that I asked <laughs> was a blank stare. And then, you know, like he very nicely, he's like, I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> so the truth is, it's probably because there isn't an exact date. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm sure there's maybe more research out now, um, but they don't necessarily have an exact date as to when the child transitions from one to the other. And again, it's probably a transition, but you can see where. For some kids, enter maybe a tongue tie. The question comes like, well, does that interrupt? Is that anatomical structural issue enough to interrupt their normal shift from a suckle to a true swallow? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And again, I 
keeping it kind of at a surface level, trying, <laughs> trying to keep it at a surface level, because obviously that's not the only thing that goes into a swallow. And we talk about this a lot. You have anatomical features, but even if all the anatomical features are correct, you also have neurological features. So I think of it like you might have a beautiful building and a wonderful structure, and that's part of it. But if your electrical isn't hooked up right, the light's still not coming on, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And of course, though, at the same time, you can't, the wiring, you know, you can't have the wiring just right and everything if the building's falling down. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very loose analogy, but I try to kind of compartmentalize that there's multiple features that goes, that go into, say, a swallow or go into articulation, go into all these things that our tongue does. <laughs> Yeah, so the function is not purely dependent on the anatomy. There is a yeah. neuromuscular coordination that without that, you have a, there it looks is. beautiful, but it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah. yeah. You know, and again, we could go, like we're trying, I'm still trying to kind of do surface, but you can go as detailed as you want in that because, you, I mean, all the different brain functions, I mean, we talk to say neurological, but there's multiple levels of brain function. I mean, you have the ones that are, um, your autonomic, right? The things that you just kind of do. So we have that side of neurology, but you also have the things that are you're doing because you're consciously choosing to. Mm -hmm. And all these things that when you see this beautiful, amazing baby, I mean, you take a baby that is healthy, all these things that start happening and they're developing, when you, when you really start thinking about all that has to go right to have all these things happen, it, it, they're little miracles. I mean, everything is kind of amazing because the truth is all these little things could break down and even little areas of breakdown can be big, big problems. Yeah, and in so. the mouth, you've got all these muscles yeah. and some of them are controlled by spinal nerves and some are controlled by cranial nerves. And the more variables you have, the greater your potential for dysfunction Yeah. because they all have to work right. And so that's where this starts to become really complicated because of the tongue's role in both speech, in um, hygiene, we can talk about that a little bit more later, um, swallowing for eating, mm -hmm. um, even the even um, chewing, the amazing fact that we chew things, and yet hopefully we don't bite our tongue in half. Like <laughs> yeah. we have to coordinate yeah, all, all the these activities. Yeah, all the abilities. Yes. That, and, and you know the sad thing is, sometimes we we see this so well. Unfortunately, when you see it broken down there are unfortunately definitely these these really really sad cases of kids um you know different syndromes maybe like different like an autism like spectrum thing like where they don't seem to have that proprioceptive feedback mm -hmm. and um and again these are rare but these rare cases where they are self-harming and you mm -hmm. see this like I mean, you see these horrible things that you, your heart breaks and you feel bad for the, the families and there's not really even, there's no easy solutions. I mean, these, again, these are extreme cases, but you see what happens when that proprioceptive, when those things that are supposed to be there break down. And I mean, I remember in residency learning about some cases where sometimes the only thing that they really could offer, so these severe, these are like severe, severe cases, but to actually look at like extractions because the kid was constantly self-harming their tongue mm. yeah so 
man, I just want to do this ad stuff. <laughs> I mean, the, the heavy stuff. But again, I, I think, you know, I don't know, maybe that's just kind of how sometimes I think things through. Like, all the things that so often you, you don't even really like notice they're there until you notice that they're gone. So I, again, they think of a symphony, you think of like, you know, orchestra and you know, played a little bit of <laughs> got roped into jazz band in high school, right? <laughs> the piano and, you know, the, some of the things that you, you don't often notice in the rhythm section that they're even there when you're listening to the whole orchestra, but you, you kind of notice it when it's missing. And sometimes you can't even put your finger on it, but you're like, something's not right. That's, Does that what, make sense? that's what everybody <laughs> says about the bass guitar. Yeah. You'll never hear it, but you'll notice if it's missing. So yes. it's kind of like that. <laughs> it, it's exactly like that. And so I think, though, um, especially in residency, some of those cases were super helpful, um, really in just learning, but also having a place to put some of these things in my head, because then it really kind of highlights the importance of each piece of the puzzle. So, um, but anyway, I hope, I hope we didn't go too much on a tangent with all that. <laughs> no, I think that sets a good foundation for the tongue and what, why it's important and what, what it's doing and, and some of those other features. And again, we'll talk more about hygiene because that's going to come up again. But when we first started going down this road, I learned about phrenectomies. I, for one, was like, tongues can be tied. Like I, that wasn't something I really was familiar with. <laughs> yeah. So, but I remember the very first question we had being very doctory about it was what is the criteria for cutting a frenum? Like, what what criteria do you have to know when they should be cut and when they shouldn't? Mm -hmm. And that question was not as easily answered as we thought it might be or as no, straightforward. No. So let me have you talk about that song and, and that road. <laughs> that may take the next well, hour. I don't I know. That's um, you know, especially coming from a dental background, which, by the way, I remember. Um, well, I, I guess I should back up a little bit. So maybe I should explain a little bit of how I even came to this yeah because because you didn't learn it in residency and that's probably an important point no. this was not talked about then. um so for me my background's a, a little different than most i would say different than most of my colleagues <laughs> at least in the dental profession um i know that there is at least one other guy out there that was speech path um but i, I don't know if there's too many more that uh, went speech path to dental but my my exposure to the world of tongue ties, so the world of ankyoglossia. Because, yeah. I mean, of course, when we're talking about, like, ties now, it's just, like, this tie and that tie. And there's technically seven different ties, different places the soft tissue in your mouth is considered, quote, tied. But when we're talking about tongue ties, which is, again, ankyoglossia, um, my... My familiarity with it started with my youngest brother. Mm -hmm. So when my youngest brother was four years old, um, no, actually, sorry, I was even younger. I was trying to, sorry. Uh, when he, well, when he was born, mm -hmm. uh, I was seven. So, um, cute little baby, I, you know, thought he was a little doll kind of thing because I was a little <laughs> seven-year-old, but. Uh, but old enough to really, you know, kind of remember a lot of this time with him as a baby. And as he got a little older and then was supposed to be developing speech, um, he was the youngest of four. And it became uh, a concern of my parents that his speech was not developing. 
And so they had taken the pediatrician, have everything checked. Oh no, everything looks good. Every milestone looks good. Everything looks good. And this kept happening. And he, at this point, if I remember right, was just shy of, I think, three years old. And if I'm, yeah. And he really wasn't talking. But again, every time they would take him for a check, it was, oh no, everything was good. <laughs> and I remember that summer that they had just taken him for another check, you know, because they really were concerned because his speech was so delayed. And he would try to, he would try, you could tell he was trying, but it was a lot of mumbling and he would just kind of point to things and be, uh, uh, yeah. And we kind of, you know, being the youngest of four, we would kind of figure out what he wanted and we still had our ways of communicating, but he really wasn't saying a lot of words. And the words that he said were very unclear. It was just kind of a, a sound. So the pediatrician let my parents know that it was because he was the youngest of four and a boy because boys have delayed speech. Now, there is some truth to that. There is like compared to girls, there is definitely some documentation there that girls utterances from a very early age are like twice as much as boys and all these things. But at the same time, he also wasn't like, you know, the only boy in the family. So my parents were like, really, really? But, um, but the other, the other excuse that the pediatrician gave was just, well, you know, he's the youngest of four and you guys are all talking for him. Yeah. And the pediatrician really lectured my parents on how you, you know, this is really important that you guys start really trying to force him to say, <laughs> I'm laughing because this is so sad. I feel like we tortured this poor kid, but, um, but you need to get him to say more, you know, you guys need to, you know, not make it easy for him. You need to really, so my parents came and they, they sat us down and I remember we had this like talk about like, well, you gotta, we gotta really work with him and we have to, yeah. so I just remember all that summer you know, he, poor guy. I mean, we'd be in the kitchen and my parents would be getting like, you know, food out or like an ice cream for dessert or something. And we'd all be like, okay, say, I. like, and we, and even like us as like the older siblings would be like, no, no, say, and this poor kid would just, get, he would be, <laughs> he was so, I mean, this poor kid would get so frustrated. He was just a little taller, but was so frustrated. So so this happened and this was going on for um, some months where we were really trying to work with him. <laughs> and one day my parents were out and um, they were talking to a real estate agent. <laughs> um, and I say that because it wasn't a pediatrician. It wasn't a pediatric <laughs> dentist. It wasn't a dentist. It wasn't, it was a real estate agent. And the real estate agent really you know, liked my brother and she was playing with him while talking with, my parents, I mean, here she's multitasking, right? She's talking with my parents and she's playing with them. And all of a sudden she looks at my parents and she's like, um, I don't, I don't think he can stick out his tongue. And my parents like, wait, what? <laughs> and, and, uh, that is how they discovered he wasn't just kind of tongue tied. Uh, right. He was, he was that severe anterior tie all the way to the tip. Yeah. who had gone to all his pediatrician appointments. <laughs> I mean, granted, this was a long time ago, but um, so 
Then my parents, they, they looked, they saw, wait, what? And they realized he couldn't stick out his tongue. And so they would try to get my dad, especially be like, wait, can you try? And he couldn't, I mean, he would try to stick it out and it was that perfect heart shape where the tip just could not yeah. come out at all. I mean, he uh -huh. was, he was severe. So, uh, you know, they set up another appointment with a pediatrician. <laughs> the pediatrician looked and was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's anchioglossia. And, and, you know, he'll grow out of it. And my dad and mom were like, wait, what? He'll grow out of it? Yeah, you know. And my dad's like, well, how will he learn to talk if it's tied? And they're like, oh, they learn coping mechanisms. They'll be fine. And my dad even brought up, like, what about, like, eating? I mean, my son can't lick an ice cream cone. And I don't know, maybe we just all loved ice cream in my family. <laughs> so, I remember, like, the ice cream cone thing really bothered my dad. <laughs> and I remember, like, for a month, my dad trying to, like, see if he could lick an ice cream cone. <laughs> without we, sticking without out his tongue? Without sticking out his tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and wearing a lot of ice cream. Um, after a month, my dad and mom, and I think that, you know, they both were bothered by this. But I remember my dad... And mom talking and my dad, like in the kitchen, just one day, he's like, Becky, I, that just can't be normal. <laughs> <laughs> and so at that point, I don't know, um, like who then told them to look for an oral surgeon, but then they started going and they, and they talked with oral surgeons and they found an oral surgeon. And I know I'm, I'm kind of making this story long, but it really, I mean, you can tell I, it's still very memorable for me. Mm -hmm. um, and let's see. So he was a little shy of three. So I was 10 years old. Yeah, I was about 10. So um, they found an oral surgeon. And back then, no, nobody really was doing with laser. I mean, right. there might have been like Dr. Jesse, yeah, you know, back then. But we didn't know, you know. There might have been a few pioneers. But, um, but nobody really knew back then. So uh, an oral surgeon, though. Um, went ahead and took care of it, and I, I don't know all the details with that, but um, but I know that you know it was it was kind of putting him to sleep and and uh, releasing it. So again, I don't I, I can't tell you because my parents wouldn't remember, but whether it was like a sedation or a GA, but um. but um, but he had it released. And this is absolutely like not everybody's story. This is absolutely not how it goes with every case like this. And I remember even the oral surgeon, like, you know, kind of prepping my parents that, oh, you know, he'll have to still go through speech therapy, which I mean, he did. He did eventually, you know, he had some speech therapy as he got a little older and stuff. But he he was really trying to, like, taper their expectations. Very nice oral surgeon. Very nice guy. Um, but I remember within a week and a half, my brother was talking. Mm-hmm. And it was such a night and day difference. I mean, it was just, it was incredible. It was incredible. <clears throat> um, and, you know, so for him though, you know, then when, when I got into speech path, so I saw that as a kid, you then put me in speech path and learning a bit about this in speech pathology and learning about, you know, it, it can affect, of course, your speech. It can affect you know, speech and articulation. It can affect your hygiene. It can affect extracurricular activities that we never want to, you know, think about or talk about. But um, thinking about that with my little brother in speech path as an undergrad, I remember even talking with some of my professors and, and sharing the story and, and what a dramatic difference it was for him. 
So I didn't know though, until going through that and talking with some of my professors and then going through undergrad, it wasn't unfortunately just those things because all these milestones of development are supposed to happen together. Mm-hmm. Now it doesn't mean you can't overcome. And my brother's such a great example of that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't realize until then that when you have speech delay, it then can lead to learning delay of mm-hmm. other things. And so I would definitely say that, you know, my parents and my brother, I mean, they, he had to go through some speech therapy. He definitely went through maybe some like learning delay in his elementary years. He has a doctorate now. He's great. Yeah. Like he came out of it, but he had to really overcome a lot. He yeah. had to work through a lot. And those were, you know, all things that, um, so leaving speech pathology, I think made me very aware and very passionate about the fact that really, if my brother hadn't had parents that fought for him, what would have happened? I mean, he now gets up and he's a public speaker. I mean, he, yeah. he will, he maybe doesn't love it, <laughs> but, do I mean, it. but he, he does it and he does it well, but what would have happened? If, yeah. I mean, he'd still not be licking an ice cream cone. I mean, so I think that it made me very passionate about it. So then going to dental school, I thought, well, I'll learn more. I'll learn more about that. No, not so much. <laughs> and then I and then I was like, well, okay. But I'm sure the specialties know. Yeah. I'm sure the specialties know how to, how to handle it. I thought, well... Maybe it's just not, you know, dental school material because, hey, you know what? Maybe this should be in the hands of the pediatric specialists and the oral surgeons. And that, I mean, that's really what I thought. Um, I thought, well, perio, I mean, perio always knows like g- like gingival tissues, but they don't do kids. <laughs> so I thought like leaving, I thought, well, maybe the secret sauce is just like for this stuff. They just keep it at a specialty level. And honestly, I left thinking, you know, that might be right because this is important and you, you don't want to get any of this wrong. So then heading to residency, I remember talking to um, the doctor, at, um, the, the specialist I was working for because I worked for mm. a pediatric specialist. Mm-hmm. And I remember before um, talking with him and, uh, and a few others actually like were specialists. I remember telling them that there were four things that I was really excited about learning and in the residency because I just feel like those were really important things that that's really what makes pediatric a specialty and it's so important and actually one of the things on my list was tongue tie and how to how to help children and you know and it's great if you can catch it as a baby to avoid having to go through what my brother went through but um but how to you know how to catch tongue ties how to treat tongue ties you know, and again, I was really only talking about ankyoglossia mm-hmm. at the time. I didn't really, I didn't, actually, I did not know the others really were a thing. Yeah. yeah. So you can imagine, you know, my surprise when I got to residency and none of my attendings, none of my attendings knew how to release a tongue tie. They didn't know anything about really other than like anterior tongue tie, but they didn't really know any classification. At least they didn't share any of that with us. Mm-hmm. Had never done any releases, and I, um, it just wasn't part of the residency program. And maybe it is now, and maybe, maybe. it's part of other residency programs. Um, but I, I remember 
being really, you know, sad thinking, oh, this is, but then I still left. Um, and when I got into practice, it still haunted me. I think absolutely if I had gone to practice, if I had opened a practice in LA or I don't know, any big city where they had others doing this, because because you, you know, there's others that it's not just dental that's in the space. Right. I mean, at that point, it was there were some really prominent ENTs. Lots of ENTs, yeah. You always hear that they're not nice people, but no, don't quote me on that. No, <laughs> no they're, they're, but you know, they're doing a good job, yeah. you know, and you hear about the ENTs, um, some oral surgeons. But if I had been in a place where I felt like, oh, well, there, there's representation, these kids can get help, that's fine. You, you know, I, I, I would have just let it go. Mm-hmm. But being in a rural community, a town of about 30,000, knowing that I would get patients from even three hours away on a consistent basis because I was their closest specialist, I I couldn't stomach the idea of, um, of not finding a way to help because I felt like I felt like maybe I was the best one to help. And it was really actually in a reluctant way because I am definitely the kind of person that it's the one, two, three, not it. If there is a person in the room more qualified, I am happy being their assistant. (laughs) (laughs) But if I look around the room and I don't see anyone more qualified, and then the worst thing, even worse than that, I see people less qualified getting ready to bat that's when i'm like yeah no 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 you go go sit i'll I'll take it so that's what kind of led to this whole venture and um and trying to just find a a way to um i I really thought you know it would just kind of be a basic thing but um just enough to help these kids with these severe tongue ties but then from that you know, it led to kind of diving into the deep and realizing, well, there's anterior ties. There's these things called posterior ties. Maybe. There's, <laughs> yeah, maybe. There is a ton of gray area yeah. everywhere. And to a certain extent, there is a little bit of fairness in the nebulous. And let me explain what I mean by that. In dental school, it is very, very, very frustrating because here you go through countless of hours where they are purposely making you the most, I'm trying to think of a nicer way of saying it, <laughs> but um, the most uptight type A measure everything to a tenth of a millimeter people mm-hmm. that you could possibly be. I mean, that's how everything is trained. Like it's, you know, you're supposed to have a 3% taper on every side for a crown. You're supposed to have like a, you know, you're, you really get to where you can actually kind of look and see a tenth of a millimeter for a crown margin and all these different things that are very, very, very technical. And it's important. That's an important part of the progress. And then enter the world of soft tissue and dentures. And then you kind of realize, oh, soft tissue is more art. There mm-hmm. is more art form. So to me, there is a there is 
of fairness in saying, okay, this is soft tissue. So it does kind of live in that world that's a little more nebulous to begin with. Mm-hmm. Because I remember like, I, again, the people that were amazing at dentures, God bless them. <laughs> they could just look at the underside of a dent and be like, oh, and I'm like, okay, what are you seeing? What you're, but they just get so good at, and even looking at people's mouths and seeing the soft tissue and seeing sore spots, they get really good at reading this thing that's not so easily read. So again, with, with tissues, it is a little bit more of this art form. However, there still should be some criteria. Mm-hmm. There should be because when you're doing any sort of release, and this is what I've brought up multiple times, I can always take away more. <laughs> I cannot put back. And um, and I, I'm probably getting a little sidetracked because I think I, I've told you a few times some of some of the conferences I've been to, um, but basically where again they they just love me at all these conferences. <laughs> Where I've asked, I've asked speakers in front of an audience, when, how do you know if you go too far? And the speaker's response was, you can't go too far. To which my response is, you mean the tongue doesn't need to be tied somewhere? (laughs) Because last time I checked, it needs to be tied somewhere. (laughs) Um, I mean, the, the person wasn't very impressive, to be honest. I remember when there's such hypocrisy in the speaker too. I mean, and I think I probably made her mad that I ended up calling her number in front of the whole audience. I remember when we were first trying to figure out, we were talking about this and we were saying we, you need to have a start point and a finish line. Mm -hmm. So how do you know when you start and how do you know when to stop? And part of the reason we ended up with um, Dr. James Jesse. And it might not be a hard stop. I mean, there might be a a little bit of a range. It could be a range, yeah. But to have the answer be, oh, you can't go too far. Yeah. With a tongue. You can't. Obviously, obviously you can go too far. But with Dr. Dr. Jesse, Mm -hmm. we got those answers. We did, yeah. And And he had his criteria of this is when I start. And then when he started cutting, you said, well, when do you know to stop? And he's like, oh, when you get this response. And so when we, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure way more for you than for me, the first phrenectomy was a little uh, <laughs> adventurous because, uh, but you start and you, and it was like, let's just keep repeating his mantra. We know we're going to start. So we're going to stop mm-hmm. when we get to this yeah. thing that he's described, the, the diamond, we're going to make the diamond and then we're going to stop. And it was, and there was criteria well, and it gave freedom within that structure. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that even in, I mean, there's definitely like in the world of different lasers and stuff, there's, there is still like some agreement that they, they want like a diamond and stuff, but man, there's a lot of disagreement though. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things that I just feel like, mm. we're also having different criteria, of course, for talking about like your lip tie versus your tongue tie. Um, and then you have these people that are saying, Oh, it's not just a lip tie and the tongue tie. Oh, you got to do the buckle ties. Now the right. buckle ties, I'm going to start like having steam coming out. <laughs> I'll go get the soapbox. <laughs> I know. Um, so the, t- the buckle ties are the ties that are on the side. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's see if I can say the side of your left side and your right side along your edentulous ridge. Mm-hmm. Now I re- remember learning in dental school about releasing buckle ties. Um, 
you know when they release buckle ties? <laughs> <laughs> it's for edentulous patients. If they have lost so much bone in their edentulous ridge because they've been, sorry, edentulous is no teeth. If they've been without teeth for quite some time, you don't have that bone on bone that keeps bone. You need that constant osteoblast, osteoclast, breakdown, buildup, breakdown, buildup. So without the teeth, they start losing their ridge. They start losing that bone. And um, what can happen is the ties on the side can pop a denture off. Mm. And so if they've lost so much bone, that there really isn't much ridge. Or sometimes they just have really prominent ties too. So if that tie on the side if it pops the denture off, they will sometimes release those ties so that it doesn't pop the denture off. So when I'm hearing about some colleagues that like, every, basically the other thing that this one person admitted in front of the whole group, I think she really loved me by the end, was basically every person that comes in her office gets diagnosed as needing a tongue tie or that as needing a tongue release. How can, how can a hundred percent of the population have something that's supposed to be pathology? It's pathology. Yeah. That is not logical. That's so as much as like, I am so passionate about making sure that people like my brother get taken care of. And, and again, we can talk about like the anterior versus posterior later too, because there is a place for that too. Yeah. I am just as passionate at not saying that a hundred percent of the population has pathology and selling something as it's pathology but yet you basically know the consultation is just something you make it look like you make it look like it's an assessment mm-hmm. when you know every single person that's coming into your office is getting assessed as neediness, every baby. And they were really big. This person was really big. I'm pushing how, oh, I do the buckles too. Like you really should always do the buckles. Um, that baby may be a dentalist right now. <laughs> they are not supposed to stay a dentalist. Like what do you mean you're cutting the buckle ties? Why? Why? I I, I don't know. And I'm sure like, I, I'm, I'm sure. Do you have many dental people that listen to your podcast? <laughs> I'm going to get, I'm going to, actually, it. I won't get it. You'll, you'll get the hate mail. You'll get the hate mail. Well, another interesting thing that I'm happened. I'm trying to not say what like part of the cult, the dental cult. Oh, right. Is, but, um, but you know, they pay for an expensive laser they go to an expensive seminar they, and they want to use it make the money back well you know and again i just think that there's room for you know discussion on this but i i'm a little annoyed by the ones that just they just check their brain at the door because mm. it sounds good people are making money oh yeah you mean i can charge you know let's, let's do 1200 maybe 1400 to do all of them that sounds great mm-hmm. why are you cutting a buckle tie why I don't know, but again, I'm gonna get probably. I mean, <laughs> well, no, I think I'll get a, a lot of feedback. I do think that. it's important, but the um, the other thing that happened yeah. is that um, by pure chance, we happened to meet a pediatrician. Um, <laughs> we were up at the college taking pictures and ran into her. Didn't know who she was. <laughs> she didn't know who right. you were. That's right. Um, only to then, and that was at the beginning of this journey. Yep. Yeah. Only to then find out she lived around the corner from us, and um, and. <laughs> yeah I, well actually it was kind of funnier than that because we just kind of hit it off we were talking we're both dog people it yeah. was beautiful her mom was yeah we just liked each other and um but it was, came time to be like so what do you do yeah. and that's such a tough question especially in a smaller town because like both of us were like you go first <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was funny because when I, I was like okay I'll go first and I was like oh, I'm a pediatric dentist she's like oh <gasps> 
I've been wanting to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) So so that's kind of how we met. But um, but go go ahead. But then but then through her, kind of developed this relationship. There are a lot of opportunities, but through her, she was a great referral source, and she was very, um, I would say, proactive on the. Um, tongue-tie front yes um, and so she, she actually really pushed me I mean she wasn't mean about it at all but she she probably has no idea that she pushed me um, I should say she encouraged me without her knowing she encouraged me because she understood how much there was a need and she understood how rule we really were and how important this was so she really had done her education her homework mm-hmm. and so we actually never ever. I don't know if we really ever. I don't advertised. think we ever advertised. And we got him. a lot of people from a lot of places, but a lot of that kind of started with her because once she got to know me, and I know she kind of asked, and I kind of let her know that yeah, you know, I've been trying to go. I would go and try to observe Dr. Jesse. Mm-hmm. He and he really is the person that I am so grateful who is willing to share his knowledge with me. So I really want to give him props on that. Um. We, we didn't advertise at all anything on my website. I don't think, I'm trying to remember if we even had it on the website, but um, I started getting a ton of referrals from her. And so that's kind of what, that's what pushed me without her knowing because she was of course catching these, you know, from the get go and then, <laughs> and then sending them to me. And that's yeah. what I was going to say is she was a great screening tool. But what that yeah. meant is she screened out the, all the non tongue ties and sent you all the crazy <laughs> stuff. And you're like, yeah. I'm just getting going on this. And you're, yes. but why don't you talk about some of the um, failure to thrive and, and what yes. that looks like at its worst? So, so we've talked a bit about how, you know, anterior tie is one where it's tied to the tip or just a little beyond the tip, depending on your classifications. Most will have them down as four different kinds of classification. You have your anterior tie and your posterior tie. Your anterior tie is either to the tip or a little bit behind. There's two different classifications for that. Your posterior ties are, are like it sounds, it's tied further back, but that's where a lot of argument comes into is that it's tied too tightly. So mm-hmm. it's kind of anchored a little bit more where it should be. But when we often think about like, oh, it's tongue tied, we say, oh, stick your tongue out. And babies, of course, you can't do that. You got to know how to look, how to how to really reach in there, how to lift the tongue. I think, but it's not just trying to lift the tongue out; it's trying to lift the tongue up. So a posterior tie is the concept and the idea that it's tied too deeply to that floor of the mouth. So you, if that baby's trying to lift it up, they really can't, and they can't lift it all the way up to get a seal on the palate. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Those are harder to <laughs> those are harder to diagnose. Those are harder to and more disagreement. Yeah. Because the other thing too is obviously a baby doesn't stay a baby. So that there is a lot of anatomy anatomy that's shifting and changing. Um so you, you throw that element into it too. Okay. Well um so yeah, she had, she actually reached out to me with a case that, um, yeah, I, I won't ever forget. And it was a case she was really concerned about. She wanted to know if I'd be willing to assess the patient. Um, she was concerned. This was a child that I think the first time I saw, i trying to remember if it was about six, six, eight months old, and it was a failure to thrive. 
his child was not gaining weight. It was not doing well. Losing weight, actually. Right? Yeah, losing weight. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a child she was very concerned about. It was also very complicated because she she was very concerned, not of course about the child, but she was concerned, wanting to rule out anything and everything she could rule out. And one of the things that she was concerned about was that it might be a neglect issue. Now, it also was a first-time parent. So, you know, there's always that, too, that you kind of look at. Like, this is a parent who, you know, first time, you know, it, we like to think that things like nursing are just so automatic, but they're, they're not. It's not always easy. And, it's, and that's something new for the baby to learn, but also something new for the parent, the mom to learn, you know? So, um, so there was that. And yet, um, the, the parent was actually in the medical field herself. And so it was really one that, um, the pediatrician really wanted to hope the best, believe the best, but really had tried and tried so many different things and had, her hands tied. She did not know what to do, but she knew enough about tongue ties that she called me up. She said, you know, please, will you be willing to assess? Tell me what you think. Is there any chance this is maybe a posterior tie? Is, could it, is it even possible that that's what's happening? So, um, so I did, I assessed, I assessed, um, the patient, um, you know, and, and meanwhile, you're, you're, you're trying to also kind of assess the parent, you're trying to assess the whole thing. You're trying to figure out what pieces are, are you missing? What's, what's happening here? Um, but I remember working really closely hand in hand with her and I, and I let her know, I let the pediatrician know, you know, you know what? I, my read is the same. I, I, I think that this, I said, you know, I'm willing to try. I said, I think it's tight. Um, but whether or not could that really be what makes the difference? I don't know. But um, basically with the pediatrician on board and the parent on board, I mean, they really were desperate. They were really desperate to, to have anything change. Um, yeah, we went ahead. We did a release. And, and I, I was very honest with them that at that point I was still newer to the space and that I maybe even personality type, I tend to be a little more on the conservative side in the sense of, you know, the first do no harm. Again, you can always cut more. <laughs> you can't put back. So I would, I wouldn't say by any means it was a aggressive release, but I, I did. I mean, I really tried to do Dr. Jesse's guidelines. I was really looking for the triangle. I, I did a nice release. But I want to be clear, like it wasn't aggressive. No, it wasn't no. anything that way. The other thing too is we were concerned this child was already struggling so much that the one concern we had, and I did talk about with the pediatrician and I talked about with the parent, is I didn't want to cause post-op pain to the extent where we maybe would get a hunger strike. Like this child was already having feeding issues. And that is, it is a possibility. I mean, it's not something that's super common, but you never know what baby might go on a hunger strike. I mean, everybody feels pain differently and a baby can't always express it 
the way you can if you can you have speech right and so that was a possibility so you know again the more aggressive the more i was concerned that we might have even more post-op issues so anyway um that one was really amazing because as much as we all kind of wanted to i think for me especially i wanted to kind of temp temper their expectations i just didn't want to give them false hope it was really such a beautiful thing because they came back and the baby started doing well. The health turned around. The baby started gaining weight. Um, yeah. I mean, it was it was really a success story. Um, in a way that was just, I think it was it was also educational for both the pediatrician and myself. But it just, it, it was just beautiful to have that win. And you know? it's not that they're always that way, but there were no. others like that. There was... I still, I'll never forget the one where, um, I think it was the day we had done several of them and I, because I'm usually behind them, I don't even really know what people look like cause I'm behind them and I can't see them. <laughs> and so I was at Walmart buying some things and I saw these people like giving me the side eye and I was like, what are these people looking at me for? And finally <laughs> the guy came up to me and the wife's smiling. The guy said, tell your wife the baby's doing great. <laughs> and, oh, I was, okay. and I was like, Okay, we must have done a phrenectomy, and then I had to like, but I, but that that would happen, and, and then I said, oh really? So then I got them to tell me more, and really that was another turnaround story. They said, mm -hmm. yeah, really, we were as first time parents, we were scared. The baby wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Now the baby's doing great, gaining weight, everything's good. Mom's yeah. happy, it's all good. So we get those. The other side is that I think in the way that we've always done it, you did have criteria to know when not to. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell the story about probably the most yeah. obvious time that you didn't. <laughs> And it made a difference. Yeah, I'll start it. I'll let you finish it, <laughs> okay, though, since okay. that's how it was. But, um, yeah, and I will say, too, just before I – on that, I, I really think that uh, – that I – and you saw, I never, ever took – I can't think of one I ever took for granted. No. I, I can't – I mean, because – and I will say – maybe I shouldn't admit this. I can't think of one – that I didn't have a certain level of stress about. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, again, maybe it's my personality. I know a lot of rodeo cowboys out there in the field, but I also told, I mean, how many times would I say privately to you, the day that I'm not at all stressed, I, I retire. I should be doing this. I should yeah. be doing this. Because at least for me, I just, I felt like, you know, it, it always, they're not long procedures. I mean, with the advent of lasers, they are not long procedures. It's amazing what can be done, but you never take it for granted. You always, especially with with the tongue. The tongue is really a different story than even a lip. The but lips, yeah. still, you want to do a good job. And the lip is, for me, I think for most people, the lip, it's an easier landmark to know where. But also, again, we learned from Dr. Jesse and stuff, like, I mean, there still are those that are going to China and you're like, mm -hmm. why, why? But, but there is a landmark. There's kind of some stuff you want to hit with the lip that that's important. But, um, but with the tongue, you know, again, it's, it's a, it, it moves, <laughs> you know, you try to hold it still, but it moves, but I don't think we ever took a single one for granted, but I will say, um, it was probably one of the most rewarding aspects and actually, truth be told, I loved all the aspects. I had so many amazing patients and so many things that made me just, even though they're hard, these are hard things. But when mm -hmm. you can help a kid, especially if you can help a kid out of pain or something, it just, I don't want to start crying. But um, 
yeah, I mean, it's a good feeling. But, and you're but, helping a mom out of pain, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but I would say that we had some of the most, of all the aspects of the practice, like, I was always blown away by how grateful the parents were mm-hmm. and how often we really, we we just had such nice feedback. And, but that really, they just were very, very grateful mm-hmm. um, when you can help them through this these issues in this space and and we really didn't talk too much about the lip tie because that's kind of that's a whole different topic mm-hmm. in a way too but but again um in these early you know those early weeks and early months it, to try to help a baby go from not feeding not nursing helping a mom who is in pain and ready to give up to turning the tide for them and making it where now the mom and the baby they're doing well and you get them through i mean there's there's yeah it's such a rewarding feeling so i had this case so i'll get back to the case you're saying that also really was like a landmark case i think for me um and i think also fairly early on i'm trying to remember when but not so early on that i didn't you know i've got god bless all like the early patients because it's why all doctors are ever practicing right it's it's a steep learning curve I was always probably ridiculously honest about that with patients being like, well, I'm still new to this. Do you, if you want a referral, you can go three hours. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you know, um, there was, there was a case. I'm trying to remember how, how long I'd been doing, um, for neck knees. For I would think probably maybe six months. You'd yeah. Be doing them. Yeah. Maybe around there. Probably somewhere in there. Um, and knowing that again, and maybe this is too, like we're, like being married to a chiropractor and seeing that and then having the speech pathology background and but also just I think the other side of it is just we talked about even on our first date diagnosis 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 (laughs) it's like the real estate location 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 if you get the diagnosis wrong everything else like your your whole treatment plan throw it away like it all starts with proper diagnosis and I think about my dad, how my dad would always give the analogy, if you're flying a plane, and that pilot might be an amazing pilot, but if they're going from LA to New York and they're one degree off, that one degree off is all the mistake it takes to never reach their destination. And so I think that when it came to diagnosis, I, I think all these little pieces of the puzzle were just enough for me maybe to question in a way where I recognize how important it is to hear your patient like not just have them come in and immediately be thinking oh this this and this or even just the exam you just you get you you do the quick exam but if you're not listening to the patient's story you don't have those little red flags that go off go ding 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 ding, something's not right like something doesn't add up so um a patient a parent came in with her little one and Oh man, she was a pro, like she was a pro mama. Mm-hmm. Um, this patient little guy, um, seventh child, I'm trying to remember, was our eighth. Yeah, somewhere around it there. It was like seventh or eighth. I mean, beautiful, beautiful family, beautiful family. And um, so mom, I mean, you can't get more of a pro mom than this one. So this mom, starts sharing the issues that the baby's having and he's having um, just just total feeding issues. And I remember she was so exhausted and 
granted, she also had like seven to eight or eight kids. I'm trying to remember if it was seven or number eight. But, but she kept saying, this baby's broken. <laughs> yes. She's like, I've got a lot of babies. This one's broken. Yes. What's wrong like, with this She's one? like, something's just, he's just, he's just broken. He's just broken. <laughs> I mean, it which I laugh because like he's, he was the cutest, cutest little guy. She's like, no, he's just broken. And um, so we started going through symptoms and granted he checked, I mean, he checked off so many of the boxes that I know most of my colleagues in this space. I'm like, oh yeah, like it's probably a posterior tie. Like, oh, it probably is this. Mm-hmm. It's probably... um, cause I, cause I looked and I, I definitely didn't feel, I mean, it wasn't an anterior tie that was immediately checked off, but trying to listen. Yes. There were things that matched some of the symptoms of posterior tie, but this is where it's so difficult. I always think of it like the symptom of a headache. There are so many different things that can cause a headache. So in, in dentistry, you have a patient that comes in and is like, doctor, I get, I get headaches all the time. Yeah, you could be like, oh, you're grinding your teeth at night. Oh, you're a Bruxer. You know, let's just get you a night guard or let's just, do, you know, that'll totally take care of your headache. If, if that's the only question you ask, like, sure, does Bruxing cause headaches? Yes. But, um, it's the only cause of headaches. It, so do seasonal allergies. So do eye issues. So do brain tumors. Like, I mean, you might think like, oh, I just solved her headache problem because Bruxine causes headaches. <laughs> yeah, but like so do like a hundred other things. Like, and that's probably an exaggeration, but I mean, it's probably close to that, right? With close headaches. to that. So, um, you know, there's very few things in medicine that we know are what we call pathognomonic, Right. And it's just a fancy term for this symptom is caused by only this. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of things under the umbrella umbrella of health, well-being, medicine, whatever you want to call it, that are, quote, pathognomonic. So as we were talking and she's sharing her story, yes, there were symptoms, you know, gassy, colicky, that fit some of the bill. But there was just some thing that kept ding, ding, ding at the back of my head being that, you know, something's not adding up here. And so um, I can't remember all the different questions I asked her, but we, we talked for a while. But I remember looking at her and saying, you know, I really want to help you. I want to help you however I can. But I have to admit, there's something about this case and with what you're telling me. And I know at the time I gave her like particulars. I I can't remember all of them, but I said, you know, if you feel comfortable with this, I would feel, I feel like there's something else going on. It might be that the tongue, maybe there is a posterior tie and maybe that is part of the whole landscape of what we're seeing. But some, with what you're saying, there's just something in my gut that's telling me that's not the main cause. And we can, again, we can always cut. We cannot put back. And I, I asked her also questions about how the delivery went. And there were just certain things that made me think, I think this is a case that belongs in the chiropractic world first. And I just so happen to know somebody I trust. <laughs> 
I really didn't know anyone else I trust. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, and I know we talk about that too. I mean, there's some people that really need to take their little one to a chiropractor. But, you know, you, you, you need to find somebody you trust. Again, first do no harm type of thing. But um, we talked and I explained who, you know, my husband's a chiropractor, but I trust him with me and I only trust me, you know, I only trust him and like three of his colleagues. That's all <laughs> I know. And, um, and I said, you know, our kids, but I said, I really, from what you're saying, I'd like to see what he finds if you feel okay with that. And then if he doesn't find anything, let's come back and we can try to do a posterior tie release. And I told her, I said, I'm not going to be super aggressive, but let's see if a little bit of release, but we'll get a little triangle. We'll see. Let's see if that does the trick. But I said, I really don't want to go there until maybe you had an assessment with my husband. She, this mom, I mean, beyond being tired and with all these kids, and granted, she, she was tired. She wanted to fix. Yeah. She wanted to fix now. And yet she was amazing. She heard what I had to say. I could tell she just wanted it, you know, fixed. Mm-hmm. Because she was so desperate, um, but she went to go see you. Yeah, and she had an appointment like that day. Yeah. So, um, oh, I think I think our staff called me ahead <laughs> and right. was like, "Dr. Fowler, please, Dr. Danny really <laughs> wants her seen like today." Yeah. yeah, so you were great. That's right. I think she went right from my office should, to yeah, yours. Went straight yeah. in, and then yeah, she came in with him, and we talked a little bit, and so then um, um, she pulled she pulled him out. Of, he was in his car seat. Um, she pulled him out, and I I scoped him, mm-hmm. and um, I won't go into too much detail on this, but he was a little tricky because I know most people, if they're thinking baby and kind of gassy and colicky, they're probably first thinking pelvis and sacrum. And I won't say that I wasn't thinking that, but I scoped and my scope showed me L1. And I remember I thought, really? So I did it a couple more times. And the more I did it, the more it drew out the reading and it became obvious. And L1 can be a little tricky to scope on a baby. Um, so then, so that's why I did it a few times. So I thought maybe it's just me, but that's where it was. And I thought, okay, I trust my scope. If it says L1, it's L1. So I laid the mom down face up, laid the baby on top of her face down. I usually do it with that way with babies that age because um, it's the softest cushion. But also the side benefit is that when it moves, the parent feels it. Um, I don't like the idea of I'm adjusting a baby and then I tell the parents I adjusted your baby and they leave going, well, I don't really know if he did or not, but we still have to pay. Mm-hmm. I never liked that word. So with the baby's there on top of them, when I adjust them, they usually feel it and there's no doubt that the job was completed. Mm-hmm. Well, especially in this case, because I laid the baby on top of the mom and all I adjusted that day was L1. That was it. When it made clump, it sounded like a cork gun went off. It was like a pop. And so, and she felt it. And I said, that's all we need to do. And she said, that's it. I said, that is it. So she said, well, since I'm here, can you adjust me too? And I said, absolutely. So she put her baby back in the car seat and strapped him back in. I had enough time to assess her, figure out what I was going to do. I was, I laid her on the pelvic bench side posture. At this point, I had my back to the baby. I laid her in side (laughs) posture. And all of a sudden, as we we were kind of talking as I was putting her in position, and all of a sudden we got drowned out by this noise that I thought a rocket ship was taking off. And if he hadn't been seatbelted in, he probably would have taken off. Um, that baby exploded um, so much that it was coming out of his pants and like into his car seat. And I looked at him and I looked at the mom and I looked at him. And when I came back to the mom, she's looking at me smiling. She goes, and you know the funny thing is, I'm not even mad. <laughs> she said, I'm going to have to clean that later, but I'm not even mad about it. So she said, this baby, when I first started talking to her, she said, this baby had not pooped, I think, 
in weeks. It had been weeks. Yeah, um, and I think I think she said like I never like it never was really real. It, just, it wasn't really real. Yeah, it yeah. was fake pooping, and yeah. then it had just kind of cut off and was had stopped. And, that's, <laughs> and that was going down for real. And then. And then it, I said, well, there's a couple of weeks worth right there coming out at once. Yeah. And so. Oh, I heard about it from her later. Yeah. So yeah. then she came back for her six month mm-hmm. and um, in the dental office. And I remember she said, oh, he's, I never had to adjust him a second time. Mm-hmm. She said, he's good. And it was all great. And yeah, and they, and they never came back for a phrenectomy. They let us know, no, he's doing great. Like yep. that it was the right call. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so the, I, I like that because it covers the extremes. We've got mm-hmm. the failure to thrives and they really, really need it. But then we've also got those ones who don't need it yeah. and we have to diagnose correctly. And so I guess just kind of to wrap up, let's talk a little bit about the lip ties, why they're different and yeah. why gassy baby syndrome <laughs> becomes part of that, that one and why that becomes um, yeah. one of the symptoms we look at. You know, and actually I, I really think that it can be tongue tied too. With that, with, I mean, the gassy baby, colicky, mm-hmm. I think um, it can go together. And I, I do, I don't know if I trust always some of the, the statistics that you sometimes like will hear at these seminars that like a hundred percent time, like if you have a, t- you know, if you have a lip tie, yeah. you have the, you know, or, or you oh, know, yeah. 80% or whatever, but um, at least for my assessments and in my practice. Whenever we would get a parent that was concerned with a baby, with a new baby, um, or newer baby, um, in fairness, I have rarely, I'm trying to think if we really ever saw a lit tie that's not attached to the ridge. I can't think of one. So in fairness, I actually feel like, you know, all babies pretty much that appears to be where their lip is tied when they're newborns is to the ridge. Now that said, some are thicker than others. I mean, some right. are really thick, yeah. ridiculously thick. Wide and, and then yes. also like dense and Some and are kind of thinly tied there, but then as you go to the lip, they're very thick. Mm-hmm. And then also some are tied there, but they're tied again, that tightness. You can't pull the lip very far. They're very short. It's a very short tie. So I do not necessarily love the whole classification or the whole like, oh, is it tied to the ridge? Because to me, I'm like, well, can you please show me some babies where it's not tied to that tip of the ridge? Now, granted, some are even beyond and like they almost go over, but most are tied right to the tip of the ridge. But the difference, I think, is how how tight is it and then how, how thick. Then you also have the human element of the mom. Is this mom a new mom? Is she a new, like, this is her first time nursing? Is she like that last story where she's, that mom had nursed all of her other kids, no problem. Not a single problem. So when she's saying that kid's broken, I'm thinking, (laughs) okay, she's obviously right. I just don't know if this is what's broken, Mm -hmm. is what told me. I was trying to also remember how old that baby was when it wasn't very old it was not old but i was thinking it was a matter of weeks it was pretty long and maybe, maybe a, a month maybe a month maybe a month or so yeah. I, I can't remember for sure i'm sorry that's the beauty and the sadness of <laughs> at this point i've seen a lot i mean we really did end up especially without advertising I, I did end up seeing quite a few but 
But um, back to the lip. Do you, do you remember the one mm -hmm. where we saw an x-ray that the bone, the, the bone in the front was not connecting and that it showed a gap on the x-ray? Yep. And then when you yes. looked at it, it was because the, the, yeah. the freedom was so thick, it was yes. filling that gap. And, and you get some of those. Um, and when you get some of those, it's kind of fun sometimes to be asking the parents. Sometimes you just see it in the parents. Sometimes it's, I mean, sometimes the parents are Michael Strahan. No, okay. No, but like, I mean, sometimes this parent is a parent who you can see a huge diastema or you see, you know, you'll ask them and you'll find out, oh yeah, my grandmother or oh my mom or oh my dad. And oh yeah, they have that, like that Michael Strahan, Lauren Hutton, that like thick drive a Mack truck through, you know. So, you know, that's definitely a genetic thing where mm -hmm. it runs in the family. And, and by the way, I always am very like, you know, depending on the patient, but I'm always very quick to say, you know, that is a beauty in the eye of the beholder thing. Western civilization, we tend to not really love it. Other civilizations Some cultures do. think they're great. They really do. So, so you know, we always want to be careful to not, like, project our, you know, viewpoint because some, some do want that. But when you see those thick ones like that and literally on the x-ray, I mean, not that we're usually with the babies doing that. Right. These are, the, I'm trying to remember with that case. That was an older kid. It was, was it cut like two-year-old or something? I thought older than that even, but yeah, it was, a, it was an older um, kid. I'm trying to remember how old. I thought it was like a four or five-year-old. Maybe. <laughs> it's been a few. Yeah. Um, but no, you can see that the bone actually isn't really touching there. I mean, those, I, I again, this there's really room for debate with some of this, but I see those as... Is there really a downside to releasing them early? Now, granted, some will say yes. Even like within the world of ortho, there might be disagreement from us. Um, but if you are releasing it, it, it's not pulling that bone apart anymore. And as they get a little older, it's allowing it to fuse hopefully better so that you don't need intervention later. And pedo, we tend to even feel that way about if that... If the tie of the lip is still on the ridge, through the ridge, you know, to the ridge, through the ridge, if it is still tied and hasn't migrated by the time they're five, six, and you see those central incisors that they're about to come in, you know, the, the baby centrals have lost a lot of their root. You look at the x-ray, you see the central incisors on deck, so to speak, like mm -hmm. a baseball term, right? There, you see... They have about two-third root. They want to come through. If that tie of that lip, if it's still tied to that ridge, I'm not going to say all, but I would say it's more of a pediatric dental thing to say, hey, why don't we release this now before those come in? Because then it won't be pulling on where the adult teeth want to come in, and it will allow them to come in with less chance of a diastema, with that, that space, that gap. In between now we literally just talked with some ortho today and ortho sometimes has a differing opinion about waiting until post ortho and releasing that so they're they're you know and there's room for discussion and debate on both of those but well, but pedo we tend to be that way and one thing most chiropractors won't know is that anytime you have something going on that's then leading to root resorption yep. you don't have time to do some slow methodical like you need to make a change now because you you're running a risk of losing a tooth you don't want to see root resorption of well i mean of permanent teeth 
Yeah. Not baby we, teeth. We, They're going to resolve. We right? love seeing root resorption of baby <laughs> yeah. teeth. No, I mean adult but, teeth. But no, if adult you're, teeth. If you're hurting the root of your adult yeah. teeth, you're putting it in jeopardy. Because I know there are people who are in this space that are thinking, well, we'll just slowly do these treatments and we'll try to stretch it out. Yeah. But if it's affecting the teeth in some way and what and the part that you don't see, you don't always have that time to just do some slow, methodical Yeah treatment and hope for the best yeah i mean that that actually like segues to like completely different where we really don't talk about this in space if you have a really severe like anterior tie or even sometimes if it's like a like kind of a posterior tie but usually it'd be like a it really would be like maybe even like a class two anterior not all the way to type. but sometimes you see for adults like when i was doing general dentistry you see the lower incisors and you're looking and you're and you're looking on the inside of them. We call it the lingual side where the tongue mm-hmm. is, lingual tongue. And you're seeing it pooling in such a way that's causing recession of the gums. Right, that's a good example. Yeah. yeah. So not so it would it's not like root resorption or something, but that's something that um, But you're getting definite changes in the yeah, teeth and, and the changes yeah. that So I mean there, there's definitely things that can happen, but kind of back to like the idea of like an infant, like a baby with the lip ties and it's specifically let's just like talk only baby this mm-hmm. is a baby who's needing to nurse i am at least in my experience from what i've seen if you have a parent in your office and they get there because they're having feeding issues i mean that's that's how they get there i don't think we ever had one that came for a consultation and was like, oh, no, everything's great. Everything's fine. No. So that's where I would say the ones I see. But, I mean, again, maybe there's some newborns out there that they're not tied to the ridge in some way. But I think they're I, pretty much there. Yeah, but if you do, if you talk with the parent and you're finding out, yeah, they're gassy, they're colicky, they just don't latch. We're having latching issues. They just don't latch. And, again, you have to separate into that category of, is this a new mom? Is this a first-time nursing mom? Is this an experience? But still, at the same time, like if it's a first-time nursing mom, you don't just throw that out the window and be like, oh, well, you just don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Like, so what? You're going to leave them there? You don't leave them there. You know, if you see somebody on the train track, you get them off. But you you want to know kind of what, what situation you're dealing with to help you diagnose what's the heart of the problem. I would say with those, what we've seen over and over and over again, if if they're having latching issues, they're having all these things, and usually what the mom almost always will also say is like, and it hurts like, you know, yeah. H-E double hockey sticks. The, I mean, the, the mom is like, yeah. And I I know what that's like. That's a whole personal story that we won't get into. But um, when you do a lip release and you do, you, you know, you do it right. But when you do a lift release, I don't know if we ever had really seen a parent come back and say, we never had one that came back and said that it got, that it's worse. Yeah, like never. they might've said that it was worse with healing. Like the, the, the baby was fussy, a fussy but yeah, that's right. they never said it was like worse nursing. No. Almost always said that it got better mm-hmm. some, to some degree, dramatically better. Yeah. Um, and maybe a few that were like, oh, I don't really know if I know. I mean, there's a, there was, there's always a few. And also, you also never know if they're contrarians because <laughs> we really didn't have too many. <laughs> Some but, of those too. <laughs> cause it, cause, well, because usually, I mean, even the couple that like came to mind and, but at the same time you question them more, you're like, oh, but you're nursing now. Oh, okay. 
Okay, so we have visions like that too, okay. where you can objectively see they're better, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't think I'm any better." Yeah. Like, no, but you yeah. are. So yeah. But I would those. say with those, I mean, there really is. There's, I mean, the risk of releasing in my mind versus the risk of not doing anything and then having them fail at nursing, having the baby failing, you know, you know falling at even failure to thrive kind of thing, not mm-hmm. getting the nutrients, you need, having a mom who's in pain, feeling like a failure. I mean, when you can turn those around, I'm never going to ever say that there's never a risk. Like, oh, there's no downside to lip release. But from what I saw, the upside is so possible so big and they're really they're like in my mind i'm trying to think of some of the downsides of release for a lip and i i can't really think of too many i mean i really i'm trying to like it's they're ticky tacky things yeah like they're ticky tacky things like i mean again if if you throw maybe some ortho thoughts of like oh well you get maybe you could possibly change a you know a you know, papillary triangle and like they wear the gum tissue. Like, I mean, they're, they're ticky tacky compared to a baby that's not nursing and a mom who's going to give up. Um, so that, that's kind of where we were at, I think, and I, what we came to with the lip releases. Yeah. I think that's the big point is that mm-hmm. it wasn't, you're getting both or neither. Like we didn't put mm-hmm. them together. They were two very separate things mm-hmm. and you would assess for the lip mm-hmm. and you would assess for the tongue. Yeah. And, and I never different. touched buckles. Because right. I was like, I cannot, I can think of a lot of reasons why I think that this is a bad idea. <laughs> and I personally was like, I, at least for me right now, I mean, we all grow, we all maybe change our minds over things, but everything I looked into and I was like, no, like, no. So I never touched buckles. I always treated lip and tongue. Now, if they had both, we would, we would treat them both. the same day. Yes. Yeah, if they wanted, you know, yeah. usually they would. But it's, I think it's best to get. But we didn't ever of, assume anything. No, but if I didn't, if I felt that with assessment, like I was very honest with, if I didn't see that it was a tongue problem, I wasn't gonna just make it a tongue problem. Yeah, that, that's how I thought. And most, I'd say most of the time, I'm trying to think if we had any cases that came back. And um, the lip was, at that point, the lip wasn't enough. But again, we definitely, I mean, it was, there were definitely ones that I was like, oh no, it's definitely tongue tie. And so we would do both. I can't think of any where you did a lip and then came back and did a tongue after. Um, And maybe I just got lucky. I don't know. But like when I, at least my assessments, I felt that, um, yeah, I felt like when when I really had that, like, I'm sorry, I just don't see it with the tongue, but I do see the lip. And I think from everything you're saying, this is going to be enough to make the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it did. It usually was, yeah. Yeah, it did. It, it, um, yeah, so uh, I, I hope that clarifies. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that, like, clears up some things, gets a lot of people mad at me. No, no okay. No, no, sure. no they're... they're Actually, I think a lot of actually I think a lot of people in this space, if there's any dental listeners, especially in the world of pediatrics, will be like, "Thank you," but I do think that there's some part of the occult. I mean, a part of the, no, <laughs> no, there are some that are definitely part of like this group kind of thing that will be mad that I'm saying that I I personally don't see a reason with buckles. I do think you can cut the tongue too far. I mean, again, that that was such a ridiculous statement. I mean, the idea that your tongue doesn't need to be attached somewhere. 
Yeah. Uh, like you're just going to keep on cutting. There's no place that you have to stop. Anyway. And I guess the inherent yeah. danger of that space mm -hmm. is that there is not a lot of research. And that leaves people yeah. extrapolating how well, they see and fit. Even with that, like, I mean, you know, and I know we have to always be careful with research anyway because it's, okay, who's funding it? Yeah. Like, do, yes, I understand that they need to take out a lot of other factors, but wait a minute. It's the, it's the cofactors that make it all work. So there, there's a lot of issues there, but yeah. my thing that we didn't really talk about coming from a general, general dentistry background where I did general dentistry for a while before I went into pedo. So I did five years of general dentistry. And during that time, I was very interested in TMJ or really TMD, which yeah. is temporomandibular disorder. Sure. I was very interested in airway and I was very, I, it's kind of a long story about how I kind of stumbled, but I, I was very interested in that world and very early on started taking some continuing education seminars and trying to learn about airway management, snoring, sleep apnea, TM, TMJ, TMD, like all these things because they all kind of correlate and all relate. Um, what stuck with me when I entered PEO is what we learned a bit about like childhood sleep apnea. And it sounds weird because we just went from like tongue ties and lip ties to sleep apnea. So, and you're like, uh, okay, whiplash, like where they, the, where they go it? together. But you yeah. know, everything in the head and neck is related, right? Somehow. You know, what is it like your, you know, your hip bones attached yeah. to like, you know, what's the song, you know, head, shoulders, knees and toes. It's all attached. Okay. So sleep apnea in kids, we're really usually talking about tonsils and adenoids because it's an, it's an immune issue. Your tonsils and adenoids are swollen. At least that's how I think of it. It's immune because their airway, they are not getting enough airway because the blockage of the tonsils and the adenoids. So they're trying to get airway at night. They're not getting enough because the, the tissues of the tonsils and adenoids are blocking. That is not the same as sleep apnea in adults. Sleep apnea in adults, you know, tonsils and adenoids tend to atrophy a bit anyway as we get older, right? Um, adults, I will never forget some of the seminars I went to. It was, it's basically the tongue, the tongue, the tongue. Mm -hmm. Again, back to the real estate, location, location, location. It's as we get older, the tongue, largest group of muscles in the head and neck region, like all of our muscles as we get older, it tends to lose muscle tone. And what can happen is as we get older, the tongue tends to fall up and backward as you're sleeping. And, it, and also that's why sometimes it depends on like how you sleep. If you're a side sleeper, if you're sleeping on your back, you know, different positions can sometimes help with say snoring. You know, that's why if you know, your partner is snoring next to you, you, know, you try to move them over, right? You're trying to unblock their airway. Mm -hmm. When you're hearing snoring, you're literally hearing air trying to push by tissues. Again, children, tonsils, adenoids. Adults, tongue. Oh. And so you're hearing that. <sighs> it's really scary how well I do that. <laughs> but you're hearing that tissue air trying to push back and that vibration of the tissues, right? So if you're thinking of like in that sense, you can kind of realize like, well, those snoring sounds, that's not, that's not, I'm not going to say pathologically, but that's never ideal. You don't really want to, you don't want to be hearing that. So with adults, they all start 
and this okay this part's mind-blowing this they all start as children your reward for surviving childhood is you become eventually adult right and over so it really sometimes would bother me within this space of learning about phrenectomies but it tongue ties in particular and technically it's like phrenulotomies but um right. I, yeah okay yeah. whatever potato 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 potato, potato yeah. right? um just in case somebody out there <laughs> who's mad at me for dissing the laser that they love which i haven't said like i purposely have stayed away from like calling out the group for sure but um they in case they're out there being like, well, she's using the wrong terminology. Well, I'm just using what everyone says. So it would bother me that we would talk about releasing. And again, you would come across these quote unquote experts that will say things such as you can't go too far, but there was no discussion of, okay, so maybe you help them right now. Let's just, let's just give you the benefit of the doubt. You can't go too far and you help them right now. So what happens and when that baby gets older and becomes 40, 50, 60, what happens to that tongue? Is there, is there a point where you did release too far that it could cause a problem as they get older and it makes it even more possible for them to have it fall up and back and occlude their airway and they have some major sleep ap- obstructive sleep apnea mm-hmm. um that's another thing it's that i essentials. really know they're like i'm talking about obstructive sleep apnea yeah. <laughs> to be kind of a little more particular on terms but and i again i raised some of these questions and that one i was nice about by the way i did not ask it in front of the whole like hundreds <laughs> of people in the group i tried to quietly ask some of the co-experts but i was frustrated that there really wasn't answers to those questions yeah now, and maybe there is now. I mean, I know that, like I said, there's some really prominent ENTs in the space that supposedly do research and stuff. But but those are the things I feel like we need to kind of connect all the dots. And while, I, again, going back to my brother, like, yes, let's get people help. If it's in our power to help, we got to help. That's the whole thing. Like, if it's in your power to help, help. You know, we want to help. We don't want any kid going through. I mean, I think, again, what my brother went through. If you can catch it early, great. At the same time, you also have to go to where you're like, yeah, but first do no harm. It has to be help, not, you don't want to make anything worse. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that kind of, I don't know if that maybe con- concludes the whole loop. Yeah. Again, this was like a, what is it? The, the, the thousand foot it's overview. It's the 30,000 foot view, but yeah, but that's I, the loop. I, I don't know. I was trying so hard not to throw like a bunch of different like things at once but um but i think that there are some things that you can try to simplify and there's a nice side but at the same time you can't do that without recognizing that at the same time these are actually very complicated things and as much as we know there's a lot we don't know out there um there's there was a saying that i heard when i was i think in college and i i remember the professor made the statement that you know even if you knew half of what there was in the entire universe let's just for argument's sake he's like you don't let's just say for argument's sake you know everything there is to know you know half of it everything to know in the entire universe you know half do you think that other half 
still might have some things that are kind of important. And that always kind of stuck with me. So I feel like we can't operate out of a place of what we don't know. Like you, you have to try to operate from a place of knowledge, but we should never lose that humility of realizing like, yeah, but there's still, no matter how, no matter how much you know, because mm-hmm. none of us are going to get to know half of everything in the universe, but no matter how much you know, you, you kind of have to come back to like, yeah, but there's still maybe a lot we don't know. And that's where like, yes, there's room to move forward and grow in these fields, but we got to have some good respect for them. So, mm-hmm. anyway. Yep. And that is a good conclusion of that circle. So thank you for joining us and thank you for, thank you for completing that and helping people to, uh, to kind of see it from a different point of view. Cause I know as chiropractors, we, there are a lot of people who work with, with babies. There are a lot of people who deal a little bit with, with some of the tongue tie procedures, but they're not in the suite doing no. the cutting. <laughs> so yeah. it's a little different point of view from over there. And so yeah. I appreciate that. You're so welcome. And I really hope it helps. And I hope that, um, I hope we kind of hit on some of the highlights. Um, and the highlights that really, to be honest, you get questions about all the time mm-hmm. and then usually send me a tag or call. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I hope we really hit those highlights because I know that, um, actually I think the beautiful thing is I'm always amazed at some of your colleagues' questions and I'm always like, why are my colleagues, no, I think my <laughs> colleagues are, but some of them I think are just afraid to speak up, you know, that, you know, but I'm always amazed at some of the questions that you come home with from some of your colleagues. So I I hope that helped. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Once again, I'd like to thank my wife for joining me today and for sharing her journey and experience with lip ties and tongue ties. I hope you gained some insight from hearing her point of view on this topic. If you take the things we discussed previously regarding fascia and you think about it in the context of what you heard today, then you should be able to see that this space offers tremendous benefit to some people, but not without some of its own pitfalls. That means that in this space, the most important thing you can find is someone you trust. To that end, my wife is always happy to help out and give her assessment or opinion if you need a consultation with someone who has no vested interest in the decision being made. You can reach out to me and I'll connect you with her. I hope you found this episode helpful and we can always go into greater depth on specific topics if you have questions or want to know more about this particular topic. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible and I'll see you again next time. Oh, 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 oh,